Welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host, Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Carl, how are you doing? And I hope you can tell in my voice that what I'm actually asking is, did you get your Mad Men DVD <laughs> you were fighting for last week? Oh, yes. This is the, the running thread everyone has been uh, dying to hear, and it's not just something that came up because the, we just dropped the episode. Okay, yeah, cool. Uh, I did not get it. The price raised from the six cents that I bid for it to $12. And my BATNA was, I think, with shipping $12 because I could find it used elsewhere eventually and I'm not really in the rush to get it because I can get it from the library. So, yeah, really exciting stuff here, guys. Really exciting stuff. Was it a nail biter? Was it one of those that somebody raised it like when it was ten seconds left? Or uh, it was one of those where it raised like six bucks from Friday to Saturday while I was asleep, and I looked at it and was like, "Man, I don't care anymore. Cool, buy it." Okay, so not not that exciting. Not worthy of a movie. No, not at all. Okay. I mean, honestly, I I rarely do any bidding on eBay anyway. I just buy weird things used. <laughs> already that are priced <laughs> you're kind of the original version of ebay like the original value proposition of ebay that's what you use it for yeah i just use it as a online vintage marketplace as opposed to a auction platform yeah okay well okay. this episode is not about ebay i don't think there's too much to mine here but we do have a kind of pack slate of a handful of things we've been thinking about over the last few weeks. Quite literally, this was me going through my text chains and Twitter chains with Aton and saying, okay, what have we not talked about recently that we need to talk mm-hmm. about? And from Aton's perspective, it's a lot of stuff that he's been thinking about based on what he's reading and listening in the news. So we've got a lot to talk about, but first we wanted to check back in on the Netflix and Microsoft partnership that we touched in touched on in our last episode. Yeah, so we touched very briefly about how the the Netflix saga uh, of them choosing an ad partner ended uh, two weeks ago when they announced that they chose Microsoft as a partner. And yeah, like you mentioned, we touched super briefly on it last week in terms of like first reactions with, together with Nick and if we were surprised or not and. Uh, finally, over the weekend, I had a chance to listen to the Netflix Netflixes um, earnings report from last week when they touched on it a little bit more, and I think it was I think it was very illuminating um, because we we talked about how you know from our perspective there were kind of a couple of things that stood out. Right, the first one was that Microsoft is the kind of the only one that Netflix was talking with that didn't have a streaming service. So they were talking with Comcast, who has Peacock, and with Google, who has both YouTube and YouTube TV. And suddenly Microsoft felt a little bit cleaner, if you will. And we also talked about how, because Microsoft's um, capabilities on this on this market weren't as developed, the pitch was probably along the lines of like, hey, we're going all in with you. Let's rethink together what the future of video advertising looks like. And let's go kind of hand in hand to do it. And it seems like this is what happened. Did, did you did you get a chance to to look to listen to it as well? If not, very happy to run you through it. I did not. I primarily read the coverage around their earnings, which we should also touch on. And 
they actually did not lose the drastic number of subscribers they were projecting at all. Mm-hmm. So they were projecting 2 million subscribers lost over this quarter. The actual number I was seeing was 1 million. So they beat estimates from my perspective. Is there any more context around the numbers that I'm missing there? Yeah, no, that's that's right. There was just a little bit of context that um, they most of the losses actually came from the Yukon, so from the US and Canada business, which is their core business, where they lost, I think, somewhere between 2 and 4 million. But then they gained subscribers in some of the lower up areas of like... APAC and EMEA. So even though, it, like you said, it, it was definitely lower than their than their estimate of losing two million, they they did get kind of that ARPU hit, and specifically a hit that with them, even though they are in this fast growth trajectory of we want to continue to grow in these low ARPU markets, UCAN is still kind of, you know, the 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 crown of the business. Yeah, that. I didn't see that. That is still troubling, especially since so much of their content strategy has been about building more or less American TV and and movie brands. And if it's not hitting here, it's certainly not going to hit elsewhere in terms of flagship English language Hollywood stuff. Okay. But back to Microsoft and Netflix. I did not have a chance to dig much into that this week. Yeah, no, and the only thing is I, I just wanted to highlight a couple of quotes from, from Peters, who is uh, the COO, when, when somebody asked, some, one of the analysts asked him, and he talked about, he said, quote, a key component of what we liked about this partnership was that there was a sort of a flexibility in that innovation orientation that I mentioned before. And so they, being Microsoft, very much are approaching this as an opportunity to work together, to collaborate, and to sort of evolve both the technical capacity and also sort of what... W- the experience is and what the go-to-market approach is. So it, it is kind of that we want to figure out together. And then he kind of doubled down and he said, quote, we saw a high degree of strategic alignment in their interest in innovating in the space and really working with us over the next several years to basically try and create a new ads ecosystem around premium TV and connecting TV ads. Which is, it's compelling. No, we talked a couple of weeks it's ago compelling. about how, yeah, they it was surprising that they didn't want to develop some of these capabilities on their own so that they could really rethink what's the best way to do this from a first principles perspective and continue to innovate. And to be fair with them, this is probably as close as they can get to actually doing that without doing it themselves. Yeah. Farther a partner that is very strong, that is also looking to develop those capabilities, do it together. And if they share those very specific North Stars around innovation and being willing to kind of break the form a little bit, hopefully we'll see actual some actual innovation in the ad space in every sense. Types, format, how they get sold, where are they placed, and, and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we hit the nail on the head without data last week and we got some confirmation. I'm still, if I was an investor, I still would not be thrilled with Netflix here or around any of this because to me it's still... Sh- shows that they don't have the competencies to do this in-house from a, a data perspective or a an appetite perspective. And mm-hmm. it is great that they are guiding it. They found a partner that's willing to build up a spoke ecosystem for them and lead with them as a flagship partner. But I'm assuming there's no IP that's going to be assigned to Netflix in this deal. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that Microsoft oh. just gets to test with a desperate partner that has 
the cash and the appetite to spend on building out this implementation as best they can. But I don't think Netflix, beyond finding a partner that's willing to build something for them in a bespoke way, I don't think they're getting a lot of competencies or IP or or actual skin out of this deal, except for they found a partner that's willing to do what they want to build a product they want. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. They're in a, a, a tough spot right now. They can't afford to be in-house on this. And I think it's a good strategy. But it's it's interesting for a company that was like, we do everything in-house. We spend more money than anybody on talent, content, IP, whatever. Yeah. And also from the investor perspective that you mentioned, I think if they would have gone with some of the more mature players, these kind of optic that investors expect when the ad supported version launches is likely going to take a bit longer. Like that first version is likely going to be more simple. And because again, Microsoft is also developing this as they go. Um, But I think the long-term outlook, hopefully it gets a little better. But again, as Netflix continues to transition from a growth stock to a value stock, Mm -hmm. uh, that is probably not what the investors wanted to hear necessarily. For sure. Yeah. The the other thing I wanted to highlight about Netflix is um, Ben Thompson had an awesome article last week about this. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about was how, you know, Netflix has 220 million subscribers and, oh, you know, all the advertisers are going to be salivating for those. And then, you know, the the thing we failed to mention was, well, those 220 million subscribers are on the SVOD version. They're not on the ad version. Like, they'll likely get some new users into that one but they'll also likely lose subscribers from the current yeah. one and move into the unsupported one and ben thompson makes a great point here where i mean i want to hear your reaction because I, I i know how you feel about data being a differentiator but um just as an example the the cheapest plan that netflix offers today is 9.99 which is kind of mm-hmm. standard uh, definition only one channel at the same time and the some analysts say that Netflix is likely gonna put the ad supported one at Hulu prices, which is six ninety-nine. Mm-hmm. And they said as a comp that Hulu apparently generates ten dollars per subscriber per month with the ad supported brand, which is amazing, right? They end up having so an ARPU. Ten dollars on top of the subscription price? Yes. On top. Okay. Only on ads. Only on ad revenue. So they end Great. up at revenue per user at around the app, sixteen, seventeen. Cool. And I think Netflix, again, is going to take a little bit to get there. Hulu is also the, be- the best ones at this. But the interesting part that Ben talks about, and if anyone is not a subscriber to Stratechery, highly recommend, is how Netflix also counts a little bit on that kind of realization happening from the subscription version to basically create a mass for those advertisers, where if all you have is net ads for, for that subscription and you have a couple of million in the first couple of months, that probably is not enticing enough for any advertiser to go kind of all in as if it was an upfront. But if suddenly you got, you know, 30 million that move from your subscription service to this one and they're willing to take the ads, there is a level, and, and we can brainstorm a little where that level is, where Netflix is likely okay, kind of people switching from one to the other. Again, there is this assumption that they can get the ARPU back to a similar to a similar level as, as the other one. That is a, I mean, that's a great sign for them. I do wonder as we're digging into revenue versus profit here, 
The difference here to me is that Hulu is the supply-side platform for the ad inventory, whereas Netflix will not be. They will be working through Microsoft. So mm-hmm. they can... I'm not sure what the engagement differences are between Microsoft or between Netflix and Hulu and what they would be on an AVOD platform. Potentially, Netflix just generates more ad ARPU per person than that's a that's redundant but uh compared <laughs> to hierarchy. compared to hulu compared yeah. to hulu but there is going to be an efficiency that hulu has that netflix just can't get by working with a partner but yeah that that tracks to me i, I that ten dollar number is pretty great i'm not sure yeah. why more people aren't compelling to or compelled by that in, in launching an avod or ad light model so much much to think about here and i, I think that price point is on par for what I would expect it to be for Netflix. Yeah. And the last thing that I also wanted to ask you about, which I think it's also going to be very, I think it's going to be very interesting. I don't know if it's too geeky because it moves mm-hmm. a little bit into a B2B world, but we've talked about the competition between these services from a customer perspective, right? And yeah. how content is differentiated and how to, you want to engage with this. To your point around Netflix serving through Microsoft, or let's say Netflix trying to get to that $10, right? That Hulu has mm-hmm. and then surpass it, hopefully. They are not competing directly with the customer anymore, right? No. This is where Disney can come in and say to a to a whatever a Procter and Gamble or a McDonald's, "I'll make you a deal. That's I have true. seven other channels where you can sell. You can sell in ESPN Plus. You can sell on my channel. I have the Super Bowl on ABC this year or whatever. And yeah, I am gonna cut a loss on my Hulu ads on my Hulu ARPU just as a way to undercut what Netflix can do." That suddenly, like, it brings some of these other areas and almost like negotiations that happen, right? In those yeah. upfronts and how one compares it to the other that is not customer facing anymore. And it's not, I mean, customers play a role because they can talk about yeah. hours watched and subscribers and whatever. But it's, um, I don't know, it adds another layer to this world that we that we find interesting. It does. The, the fact that the end customer in, in terms of revenue is revenue and sales and and profit splits is so much different than the B2C model that we're so used to. It requires a different level of strategy and thinking. But I think our overall point throughout this podcast is that's healthier for a company to have multiple endpoints in terms of their revenue and supply chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Exciting. Exciting to see the what the first ones look like. I might have to change to the Netflix ad-supported plan for a month just to see the experience and, and feel it yeah. for a sec. I have to bring the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so let's stay on streaming for a minute before we spend the back half of this episode more in movies. So there's a thing I saw on Twitter today where somebody, uh, it's Sage Hyden on Twitter, uh, a video essayist and writer, tweeted out a graph of Westworld viewership per episode. So where are you on Westworld? Do you still keep up with it? I think you should go through the through the graph because it's going to be a great uh, description of where I am with Westworld. Uh, but I'm basically hardcore season one, saw it live every week on Reddit, trying to figure out the maze and the, remember, the Black Knight and the mm-hmm. whatever's. Second season started not as great. Third season, just watch it basically by 
gravity, if you will. And yeah. I have to say, I didn't even know there was going to be a fourth season until like last month when I saw it appear on HBO Max, and I was like, ah, I didn't like the third one. <laughs> so, yeah, tell us, tell us more about the graph and how it looks. So this actually pretty much tracks exactly for me in terms of viewership stats, where U.S. viewers for Westworld hovering around 1.6 to 2 million in season one. Same as you, caught season one early. I think the mystery box component of it was well done. It was compelling. Everyone was watching it. Kind of played more like a miniseries at the time than something that was going to be longer. Uh, Season two comes along. I like season one enough that I'm going to keep tracking. And then episode 15 is when it drastically dips from like 1.6 to 1.1 million and then goes back up. I think that's about when I dropped off was halfway through that season where I just felt like it was the same thing all over and again and I wasn't getting anything else. And then beyond that, you have uh, seasons three and season four, which I did not watch. Uh, They're under one million for three and so far under 0.4 million for season four. Same, Same page as you too. I didn't see any press around season four at all until I saw somebody tweet out a review of an episode of it. This chart, though, is misleading. Mm -hmm. This is TV viewership live, which is useless. I I don't know why somebody is even trying to make a claim based off of this. I think this is... I wanted to bring this up not as a critique against Westworld or where it's at, but more as a quick entree into a discussion around how streaming has radically changed everything for everyone, especially for HBO versus HBO Max. Yeah, and I think uh, some some of the things that we talked about that made Wasteworld so special, that especially that first season, around watching it as live as you could and being mm-hmm. able to partake in that conversation on Monday when you when you go back to uh, it was the first season twenty eighteen when we started at school. Well, I don't know, but like all of those yeah, conversations I th- I think happened, it was and it, it was yeah, right before it, we started school. Yeah, and it mattered than for most, you know, I think specifically for season one, even HBO Now didn't exist. It was probably just HBO Go when suddenly the, that that pool really made it more than also than what it was. And with streaming, some of the things that we've talked about of how fleeting it becomes or how that ability to get people to watch it at the moment that it comes out because you want to make it a... Um, an event mm-hmm. is something that you know we've talked about how it happened a little bit with the Euphoria finale and it happened a little bit with the uh, uh, mayor of East Town and I'm very very curious to see what happens with Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings because in order to recapture that and, and getting those notes of like hey these are simultaneous subscribers Sunday night is the only thing that you will basically be able to say, okay, I can compare it with, with live TV. Yeah. I I agree with you on that. Real quick correction. 2016. It was fall 2016 that the show came oh. out. I but forget that they I, took like three years between seasons or whatever. Yeah, I, I think I mean I think that's part of the momentum problem here. And you're absolutely right that this is just what was driving the conversation at the time. They had Game of Thrones on, so I think a lot more of a lot more people in the general public were subscribing to HBO Classic or HBO Now at the time than had ever been. 
and a lot of the people or pretty much everyone has moved on to HBO Max or probably canceled at this point. They're not on these legacy products. Maybe they are still getting it through their cable provider, but I imagine the demographic of people watching Westworld is probably not the demographic of people that are still having HBO through a cable package. That's what I think. But yeah, I think overall it's it's absolutely this conversation driving thing of just you can't dominate the cultural conversation as easily now because we're even deeper into peak TV than we were in 2016 and just have so much on that it's dividing the attention. But beyond that, there's it's impossible to know the mix of people here. And I mean, Succession, you and I, like, so, so many people are still watching HBO shows on the night that they come out, but... It's not necessarily live because you can't track that. I, I just think it's really misguided to try and uh, compare apples to apples with any of these numbers at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also one of the things that makes some of the not only streaming versus not, but the, the binge dropping versus not mm-hmm. where like when Stranger Things came out, like I couldn't binge watch everything the first weekend. Yeah. And then if I'm suddenly for netflix is if you do get that level of engagement because it's amazing and people want to do it you get a, that spike at the beginning but then zero things on the long tail and then if you do get people on the long tail you don't get the benefit of people talking about it based on how it's doing and yeah i'm i'm truly i don't think it happened with i mean disney has tried with some of the star wars stuff but i'm i'm, I'm very curious have, have you seen the latest trailer for the for Game of Thrones, for the House of Dragons, I think it came out like two weeks, two days ago. Oh, you're not a, you're not a. I mean, I don't, Windows. yeah, I don't like Game of Thrones, so I'm definitely not going to click on it because I'm not. Oh man, interested. It looks period. It looks good. It looks so much better than the Lord of the Rings, and those are two interesting comparisons because no. we have reference of what we're comparing them for, and it's interesting no. because I think most people that see Game of Thrones have a very bittersweet memory. Yeah versus the Lord of the Rings and maybe that but also helps that people are more likely to be like yeah exactly yeah, they yeah. want to feel redemp- redemption and uh, but yeah that's gonna be there's gonna be a battle I'm very curious to, to with my friends and and on the web what happens and if people do go back like Sunday night what is is uh, how is the Lord of the Ring ones being released do you know like is it weekly I mean Amazon and... does everything weekly so Probably Friday. Weekly. Yeah. Rings of Power release schedule. So it comes out September 2nd, which. What day is September 2nd? Sorry, I'm doing some live calendaring here. September 2nd <laughs> is a Friday. So maybe, maybe it's going to be one of those. I think The Boys is also. Um, on Fridays. Well, Friday versus Sunday. Yeah, I mean, they've been killing it with the boys in terms of streaming ratings this season. I think it's finally hit a critical mass of people Very watching good. it. And killing it with memes. Is your too. Twitter feed also yeah. filled with the Homelander laughing <laughs> meme? It is. Uh, but with as with most media memes... 
if it's not organically coming in through like my friends or my uh or like film twitter people and instead it's just random people i've never heard of making these memes i start wondering how much of it's astroturfed versus real <laughs> but I it's hitting it. my feet i, I really like it homelander uh, it's a pretty great character he's awful but he's pretty great <laughs> so i i think the point you make about whatever the initial impression of a franchise leaves is what people compare it to going forward so in this case lord of the rings it's the rings of power has a lot to live up to well if we consider the peter jackson original trilogy instead of the peter jackson hobbit (laughs) trilogy we we don't count that here but maybe that helps i think uh, another creator who has a similar problem and will for the rest of his life is jordan peele and that mm-hmm. every single person that ever sees a Jordan Field project after this will treat him like Orson Welles and look at the very first movie he made, Get Out, which is totemic and important and perfect and great, and say, is it as good as Get Out? So in our wow this wow. week, we have the same wow, which is Jordan Peele's nope. So does he live up to his standards, Eitan? And also, not only same nope, same IMAX. Uh, wow, right? Yes, I yes. Okay, fantastic, pretty good. Wow, except we're shouting it. I don't know. We can do that in post. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, get out. It took me a while to get into Get Out because, yeah. as you know, I tried to stay away from horror, and I misunderstood Get Out, and I didn't have anyone confidently telling me Get Out is not horror. Like. It, it, it's not what it is. And as soon as I saw yeah. it, I loved it. Fantastic. Us, however, haven't seen it. Don't know if I want to watch it. That trailer does seem a little bit more horror. It's, nope, pure. it's, since, it's more horror, yeah. Yeah, more pure, right? Yeah. Uh, nope, since the first uh, poster came out with a house with the clouds on top with like some of the flags coming out, I was like, okay, this, this is interesting. I really liked Nope. Halfway, I have to say, I didn't like it as much as I thought I was going to like it halfway through the movie. I think, okay. I, think the, Fair I think the second half lags a little bit to bring it to a conclusion because it's not sure exactly where it wants to end. But I think the first... I think Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are awesome. I think Steven Yeun's arc... Especially the connection with the Gordy and kind of this fetish that he has with the ability to control these beings and make a spectacle out of them pays off very nicely with kind of how his character ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler alert, if you don't want to hear spoilers, um, move on for, for a little bit. But that end, that scene where he's going to do the Star Lasso experience and you realize that he knows... Mm-hmm. was great. Like, I was like, oh my, like, oh, he knows. He's seen these. The lights were him. Look at his jacket. Like, he's got, he knows. Yeah. I don't know. Something clicked that I was like, oh, this is so great. And the Gordy stuff was about him and this thing. And it had nothing to do with uh, the, what's it, what is it? The Hayworth, the Hayworth horses. Yeah. I think the whole scene were, like, for me, the climax is, when the when it goes over the house and then over yes. the and then over the, the truck. 
those 20 minutes are fantastic, phenomenal. And it lost me a little bit in that last 45 minutes where it felt like he was going to be with a camera and then that was even longer and then there was a motorcycle and then this guy that puts himself into thing and then the semen the turfer mm-hmm. and then they run and the motorcycle and it goes and goes and goes. Um, but no, I really, really liked it. I came out kind of very happy for all the obvious reasons, I guess. I like to come out these things being original, being... Um, a little bit different. It was a fun watch on the theater with the people. Yeah. Uh, also, how he plays with horror. Like, the two scariest parts are honestly when the kids scare him with the yeah. onion heads. And then when the bug in the camera <laughs> comes out. But anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> really liked it. It's very high up there for me. It was an interesting one where halfway through the movie, I was going to be like, oh, this is going to be an old timer. And then when it I was like, ah, so close. What do you think? It was interesting seeing it with an audience. I saw Get Out opening weekend with a great audience. And Get Out is a film that is experienced very well with an audience because people are reacting very viscerally to things that people are are laughing at things in Get Out out of horror, out of release, out of satisfaction and revenge it's it's such a great audience movie and get out or with nope the audience was a bit more muted they Mm. you would hear gasps you would hear kind of shouts of delights there were a few points at which people were laughing and i think the vibe i got coming out of the theater was everyone looking around at each other and being like wow that was like that was good and people enjoyed watching it but I don't think people knew what to make of it from a like narrative or emotional themes perspective, which is mm-hmm. fine. I, I think the the two films that this are most evocative of to me are uh are certainly M. Night Shyamalan's Signs and mm-hmm. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, though maybe more Jaws, just kind of Spielberg blockbuster entertainment at its finest. It is to your point earlier. It has scenes of horror. Uh, it has the scenes of horror that I think are divorced from the main narrative, though obviously important to a certain character. But it is kind of a throwback. Just we have to problem solve with we're, we're invested in this family drama. We have to problem solve about how to interact with the supernatural or the horrific. And it's something that feels a little bit throwbacky in a way that's a step down from horror and more like thriller in a good way. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a little less high-minded thematically than Us, which is good for the film, though it doesn't execute its themes as well as Get Out. But I think it is certainly the most probably baseline entertaining and accessible of his films from a p- plot perspective of the three, though I think Get Out just is a magic object. Yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Um, yeah, it was... It was. Uh, I had a good time. Um, yeah, everyone I think, should I see what Nope, you, I think, is what we're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think what you were saying of how people came out trying to understand how they felt, I think it's a good reaction of... Um, I even I even found myself jumping across some of the thematic plot points and things mm-hmm. feeling like 
okay, the thing that connects me the most is Daniel Kaluuya's character, OJ. Sometimes being like, no, Kiki Palmer is kind of the thing here. To, again, Steven Yeun's character being the most important thing for 20 minutes, maybe. Yeah. In between. And being like, okay, what is the story that I'm taking the most out of here? Because I think OJ's story also doesn't really get fulfilled all the way. Yeah. It feels like like Kiki Kiki's character ends up having more of a emotional... Uh, what's the word? Uh, like delivery or yeah, yeah, arc and, and end. And even even the character wasn't even the character from the Fry Store. I don't well, remember his name. Him? The character from the Fry Angel Fry Store. A- yes. Angel? Yeah, yeah. Um. But yeah, pretty pretty cool. I do want to know what's your thoughts on the what's the, the cinematographer. As soon as he came out for the first time, I was like, oh, I want to ask Carl about this guy and how yeah. Jordan, uh, um, he he paints kind of this, ah, the only person that really knows cinematography is going to look like this and act like this <laughs> and kill himself for the impossible shot type thing. Uh, so Hoida van Hoidema killed it. It looks great. I Real, real quick, I want to... I agree yeah, with yeah, you yeah. on the point about Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki. I think overall the weakest point in the the film is that the familial relationship of the Haywoods just isn't as fleshed out as I would want it to be to, to kind of hang the story as much as it, it hangs on them. Alex and I were talking about how it's it's one of the rare movies where it's over two hours, but I feel like a director's cut could improve on that just by having some more emotionally tinged scenes between the two of them and between their father. Yeah. That said, it works so well on every other level that I'm, I'm thrilled, including the cinematography. Something that the cinematography does here is this is secretly a COVID film, like not about like COVID thematically, but it's COVID in terms of it was shot during COVID. It has a very small cast. It mm-hmm. takes place in these wide open spaces. It's, a pretty limited setting. It's pretty much one valley in Southern California. Agua Dulce. Their Spanish pronunciation is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Better than mine would be. And that said, Hoytevin, Hoytevin's work really helps sell that it's so big. The the American West always looks great when you have big cameras pointing at it. Think about Arrival or... Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex and I enjoyed Montana Story this year, which is similarly just like this stuff looks beautiful when you capture it on a big lens on a big camera. And Hoyda is shooting so much of this in, in IMAX, and it's stunning. It looks really just broad and sweeping, and you have this sense of negative space that you don't have when you're not shooting in a in a large format. Um, there's also a very important flashback. That is uh, one of the few indoor things that's shot in IMAX, and it really helps ground you in that space and immerse you in a bit more than the other indoor stuff, and it, it makes it really, really, really scary. So I, I love the work. I thought it was impressive. Uh, it's also fun that Hoida got to have. Did you have the pre? Did you have the trailer after all the studio stuff or all the yes. AMC stuff after for Nicole Kidman? Yes. That was really confusing because I'm just seeing Weird. all this fire. And I was, I was like, and... syncope? 
Syncopies Nolan. What is happening? Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, so Hoyda also shot Oppenheimer, and there was an Oppenheimer IMAX trailer, which, I don't know, typical Nolan tra- trailer of a Gotham-esque font, loud noises, and big, beautiful imagery. But, hell yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there next year for you, Chris. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're ready. But yeah, go, 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 go see Nope. Quite fun. And it'll be interesting to see if people do go see Nope. It had a healthy weekend this week- weekend. You were actually correct last week in that it stood a chance of toppling Thor and Minions for the top spot of the box office, and it absolutely did. Thor and Minions continued to drop off, and Nope pulled in $44 million, a little under what was projected domestically, but a healthy opening weekend. It's also an interesting opening weekend in that this is one of the few releases that has been only U.S. and Canada at this scale in a while. So Nope does actually not have international distribution until August 12th in most territories. So it should grow even more internationally. But that just shows to me that Universal was not sure what to make of this themselves and didn't want to jeopardize it when they could just throw it on Peacock internationally or sell it to someone else. Yeah, that's interesting. Especially because... There isn't a lot still missing, right, from this late. Not only of the summer, but of like 2022. Yeah. I guess next week is Bullet Train. That with every trailer that I see, it looks worse, which I'm yeah. scared about because I was very excited about it. And now suddenly they have this trailer with uh, Sandra Bullock. That I'm like, mm-hmm. was she added in a reshoot? Because she has was not there, and all the scenes is only her and Brad Pitt, and this is super strange. And they are showing us how it ends, and that he's... I don't know. I'm now very worried. It... I I totally agree with that. I got so sick of the original trailer that was set to the Bee Gees, but it was fine, and it looked fine, and Brad looks fine. Whereas this... This one looks like too much in terms of what they're going for, in terms of all the, the cameos and guest stars and everything. And it just looks like it devolves into generic CG action goop at the end. It, it just doesn't look like it really, really makes use of its limited setting that it's pitching. Yeah, because, yeah, who, who's gonna, who can challenge them this week? Who can challenge Nope? Vengeance? DC, Super, DC League of Super Pets? Uh, I imagine that that's going to underperform for the family reason with streaming, and that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But yeah. Good for Nope. I, I'm interested to see how it uh, how it plays internationally, whenever Universal decides to I, yeah. open. I'm I'm sure they will. It was a healthy enough opening weekend. So yeah. before we go. There was one other thing I wanted to chat with you about, which is okay. you and I are famously both AMC, what is it officially, AMC Stubbs famously. A-List? Is that the product name technically? I think so, yeah. Yes. But we're, we're yeah, AMC Stubbs A-List, which means we can go three times a week to the movies for free. Well, yes. it's included in our monthly, yeah. Right. And there are different pricing tiers from... $18 in smaller markets to, I think we pay, what, 25 
ish after twenty three ninety nine, depending something on something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the pricing there. So that is what we pay every month because in Boston and San Francisco, if you see two movies a month, it pays itself off. And both of us are tended to say see more than two or more a month in a theater. Yeah. That also includes some other random perks like we can save money on popcorn sizes, we get we don't have to pay for online ticket fees for other people, we get some cash back with concessions spending. But I personally don't spend that much in concessions at AMC's. You don't either, right? No, Ariela gets a Coke icy. That's yeah. her thing. Yeah. Once in a blue moon I'll get that. Or I'll get a drink or, or something, but I'm not paying ten dollars for stale popcorn. Mm-hmm. That said, there's another pricing product called, or there's another product called AMC Stubbs Premier. And you said that this was this has existed before. I had never seen it until like two weeks ago in terms of ads. It rings a bell from. The first time that I went back to the movies in COVID, which was to watch In the Heights in Durham, North Carolina. Amazing. Where I saw this thing where, yeah, I think, it, I think it was like $15 a year, but I think it's been on sale for at least a year. Where, yeah, yeah, tell us tell us exactly what it have. You might have it in front of you. I do have it right here. Okay. So right now it's $7.50 a year. Typically it's $15 a year, but the first year is $7.50 right now. And you essentially get those other perks that I described that were not the reason we are subscribing to A-List, where we are saving a significant amount every month. But this is, you get to upsize your popcorn and fountain drinks for free. You get to reserve tickets without a reservation fee, which is 2 to $4, typically. And yep. you get 10% back on concessions. And it's an annual fee of, let's say, 15 without without the pricing deal. I kind of think this is brilliant. It's not for us, but it's brilliant for the market. Well, it's not for us, but I was going to say, I just remembered. I got it when I went to In the Heights because they ah. do it very smartly. I was going to buy two tickets and it said, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, $14.99 per person and $1.99 convenience fee each. So I was going to pay $4 for fees. And they were basically just like, hey, just pay $3.50 more. Then yep. for the year, you don't pay any fees and you don't pay, uh, yeah, you get some of the convenience stuff back. And I was like, I'm not ready to go back to A-list because it's still COVID and I might still go to the movies once every three months. But this seems like a no-brainer for $3. Yeah. Do you, do you think this makes business sense for them, though? I like the price discrimination. I agree. Are they making money or are they this is just uh, so it goes a back to, what I... to try to get people to upgrade i guess it goes back to what i said offhandedly about the uh, dc super pets movie which is there's a family problem when it comes to going to theaters versus streaming right now and i think this has the effect of creating a a retention device Mm -hmm. to retain and re-engage people with amc theaters that are in the position where they're not paying for one or two people in a household like you and I are. We're both paying for two people when we are doing this pricing strategy to go to the movies. They're paying for f- four people 
two of which are children or more. They're paying probably more for concessions because it's more of a outing to go. And I think you and I are, are more, when we think about going to the movies, we're actually going to see the movie. But a lot of people generally are going to see the movies because they want to go have a night at the movies with popcorn and treats and everything. And that's a big part of it. They're also typically going in groups, which AMC A-List, like we said, you can purchase tickets for groups and other things, but they're not going to get the free ticket like you are. Right. Um, this is just optimizing for, you're purchasing for a group of people that doesn't go to the theater religiously. And you're also purchasing for people that when they do go, they want to spend significant amounts of money on concessions every time. And that describes, I think, many Americans, especially in an American family situation. And this convinces people that it's cheaper to go to the theater instead of going, instead of only streaming. It's still not cheaper. They're really not saving that much money. <laughs> um, right. It's also convincing people that it's, it's easy to do it. And it's showing some sort of, I think, concession in terms of you can also be part of this cool perks program. So I think it's all upside. But for us, it certainly makes no financial sense to subscribe to this instead of A-list. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, my sense is exactly which is what you said of this is uh, customer acquisition slash customer retention cost. Yeah, I'm gonna forego forego my potential revenue on the on the uh, fees just to get you to choose to come with us instead of to Cinemark or to Lowe's. Yeah, and that's okay for them. Or Regal, exactly. sorry, I think Lowe's is AMC. But yeah, that's interesting. Do you have time for a very quick AUA? I do. I do not have one for you this week. I guess this was my AUA, which is what do you think of for this? So, <laughs> perfect. Let's do one. Um, it was Comic-Con this weekend. Yeah. Anything came out of that that made you excited? Announcement? Trailer? Uh, or something that actually created the opposite reaction that you would want to highlight? Okay, give me two seconds. I want to... Okay, do you have quick hits? I can just... I just want to talk about Marvel, honestly, but I, if there's anything... Same. Really exciting. Do no, you, no, no, have you seen Marvel. anything? Okay, cool. Wakanda forever. Cool, cool. All right, I'm coming back in. That's what I was going to say. I Comic Con has less and less cultural importance every year, considering most people are pulling everything into their own presentations or press days or online announcements for the most part. That's a. I was surprised to see Disney prominently there, considering that they also have multiple annual touch points at now for their content slates, but they rolled out the next two phases of the MCU. And it's like every other announcement they've ever had where they have Kevin Feige stand up and say, this is everything we're releasing for the next, what is it? Six years. I think is this what this one encompasses? Yeah. I, th I think it yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, except this one had much more in terms of Disney Plus sketched out. It also had not just the next phase completely announced. Usually they're just like untitled Black Panther film. And this is like, no, this actually has everything that you need to know up front. Uh, but it, they also said that this is all leading to two more Avengers films. One of which is uh, Avengers Secret War, which is a, a incredibly famous comic book line just like the Infinity Saga is, though not by name. So, I I don't know. You know my general feel on Marvel. What what did you pull out of this that's notable? 
Yeah, I think the first point I agree, which was Disney's D23 is in a month. And I thought they were going to keep some of that for that, but they announced that. And yeah, for me, Marvel, even from that, even from the things, the Wakanda Forever trailer looks pretty good. They have a pretty, you know, you know what made kind of yeah. Black Panther special in terms of how it looked and what Ryan Coogler did and the music. It looks beautiful as well. The music looks ama- is amazing as well. Have you seen the trailer? They they have a remix of No Woman No Cry and um, Kendrick Lamar's We're Gonna Be Alright. Mm-hmm. That is very cool. And I don't know. It looks great. I think it also has... Apparently it's gonna be uh, this thing where Atlantis is gonna come up. And I saw yeah. the trailer. And Atlantis looks Mayan. Everyone looks Mexican. And have like penachos and the gods and the paintings look Mexican. And then I was like, are they fighting the Mayans or the Aztecs? And then I went to the library <laughs> and was like, oh, it's Atlantis. I'm like, is Atlantis in Mexico? So now I'm I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, I think the, the actor that plays, I think his name is, I'm not into, I, I don't know a lot of the comics. I think his name is Namor, the emperor of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. It's a Mexican actor. So it sounds like there is something there. And uh, yeah, that, that made me excited as well. I'm surprised they're pulling in Neymar, but at this point they're pulling in everyone. Like, America Chavez is a name of a character, and that's just... I don't know, that sounds like the most made-up name of, of anyone in a while. And But Neymar is just... It's the Aquaman thing of... Aquaman and Namor are just kind of always lame in, in every interpretation of media up until this decade. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that, based on Aquaman doing well, they're branching out into it. Uh, I also think your your point is correct, which what we're beating around here is that Chadwick Boseman is not alive. So he is not the oh, yeah, 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 yeah. central, he cannot be the central protagonist of Black Panther for the next 10 years. He cannot be the Black Panther for the next 10 years. But Black Panther is a Captain America sort of character where he's so, or T'Challa is such an archetypal good archetypal everyman character obviously he's of regal birth in a country that is in a vastly different world than what we live in but he's a character where it's not like it's not so embedded in what black panther is as a film that the brian coogler cannot make a black a second black panther movie built around some people that aren't t'challa I don't think T'Challa is the important thing about Black Panther, all things considered. Honestly, Killmonger is, and Killmonger's not in this either. Yeah. Yeah, but if you haven't watched it, um, it's homework. Watch it and text me what you think of the trailer. Sounds good. Fantastic. And I think on that homework that I just left, Carl, um, thank you everyone for listening. Um, We'll be back to you, talking with you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.